Thank you, Andy, for leading us in worship. Open your Bibles, please, with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. It was uh, before I was 10 years old, that's all I know. No, it was actually between 10 and probably 12, to be exact. We were newly arrived in Clarkston, Michigan, from Warren, Michigan, and I had a new doctor out there. His name was Dr. Kernis. Dr. Kernis was a cool doctor. I was into astronomy, and he kind of was too, and I had to go for monthly allergy shots and all the sicknesses that a normal 10 through 12-year-old faces, and, and he'd take care of me, and then we would... Uh, we talk about space stuff, space shuttles, stuff like that, and he was cool. So he's, that, that's another reason, I was so comfortable with him, that's another reason I wanted to go see him um, on my own, um, at my own request, and I asked mom, can I, can I get a, an appointment with Dr. Kernis? What's wrong? It's not your allergy shot, no. It's not, you're not feeling sick, are you? No. Why do you want to go see Dr. Kernis? Now remember, I'm between 10 and 12. And I said, Mom, I'm, I, I want to get this mole taken off the back of my neck. It was a, I, thought, I was like, I thought long and hard about this, Mom. It's a mature decision, and I want to get it taken off. The barbers are always cutting it. Uh, my, my best friends uh, make fun of it and have named it, and, and I just want to have it cut off. And I hear you can do that, <laughs> or the doctor can. And she said, okay, we'll go, and uh, it'll hurt a little bit, but, you know, they'll either freeze it or whatever, but they have a way to get it off. So we set up an appointment with Dr. Kernis, the coolest doctor in Clarkston. And I went in there, and as you knew, we, we had a very warm um, relationship. Uh, he was always kind and had time for me. And he says, what are, you, are, you, are you sick? No. What can I do for you? I, I, want, I want you to take my mole off the back of my neck. And I was serious. And he says, why? I said, it is embarrassing. My friends have named it. Barbers are always cutting it. And, and, and I think about it all the time. And my identity's wrapped up in it. And, you know, I didn't use those words, but I was waxing eloquently trying to talk my doctor into taking it off. And then he did something I wasn't expecting and have never forgotten. He spun around on his heels, lifted up his hair, pulled down his collar. He had the exact same mole as me. And he says, you'll be fine. And when I saw that, I was, I just, I threw my shoulders back, stuck my chest out. I'm like, suddenly this mole is cool because <laughs> Dr. Kernis has the exact same one. And look how old he is. He was super old, like in his 40s or something. And uh, I'm going to be okay. So we left it on. It's on there to this day. I'll show you in the lobby if you want to see it after church. And that's kind of gross. But uh, it was, it, it, I was so worried about it and was, was, in my own wording today, I, I uh, was so worried about it that I was conscious of it all the time and felt like I, I was walking with a limp, you know, because I had this, this mole. But it changed when someone turned around, someone turned around and showed me theirs, and they said, yeah, me too. And that just kind of changed everything. You know, I started two weeks ago on a Sunday evening this series called Two Kingdoms and One House, and and I was, as you know, I was wrestling whether to put it online um, and even have live stream just because of stuff I was going to share throughout the series about my home and just wanting to be careful with my mom and dad's honor. And uh, I, since then, in opting to put it online and, and also to put the recordings on Sermon Audio, I have had people in several different states contact me in the last two weeks thanking me. 
And I have had people, even again this morning, uh, alert me to the fact that there are some biblical counselors accessing this series through our sermon audio to help other people. And, uh, and I wasn't expecting this. It was just two weeks ago. But um, there, in, in essence, people are getting some hope. It's like someone spinning around and saying to people who are married and living with a disobedient or unsaved spouse, and they're discouraged about it. They have found they've wrapped up their identity in that fact. But when they see someone else spin around and show them their marriage and say, yeah, me too, in a sense that gives hope. Uh, whether it was my story of my mom or not, or whether it was looking at the data of Scripture, you understand, if this is your story, that um, there are others who are going through the same struggle. And just that fact alone gives you hope. And again, that's why um, Paul and Peter both uh, make a statement in their epistles to say what you're going through is not unique to you. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it's common to man. Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse, verses 9 and 10, what you're suffering as a Christian, that's the suffering he's specifically identifying throughout his epistle, you are living out your Christianity, you are living out your discipleship, and it's bringing fire. Not just from the government or the culture or the work culture, but even sometimes in your own home. And Peter makes this point in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. He says, Other, your brethren in the world are experiencing the same types of suffering. In other words, there's hope in knowing that someone can say to you about their marriage to a disobedient or unsafe spouse, they can say the same thing. They can say, yeah, me too. And suddenly there's hope that you're not alone. Well, as I mentioned in my opening message in this series, which I call the disruption, I wanted to, in the second message, take you to a case study in Scripture itself. I'm glad we have hope from each other's um, stories that we can share together. It might be someone you know who can say, me too. It can, uh, it can be someone else across the country in a, or across the globe in a different country, in a different language, who's going through the same thing. That gives you hope. But I want to take a close look at an example in Scripture, and, and I don't want it to be an easy example. I don't want to get into the shallow end of the pool and wade out to the deep end. I want, with you tonight, for us to jump into the deep end and look at a very, very difficult marriage. And someone who, by today's standards, would say that they feel trapped. I want us to look at a case study about a lady, a wife named Abigail. And her story is found here in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And I think after we look at her example, you'll not only be able to hear her say, yeah, me too, and that'll give you hope, but you're also going to learn from her example and perhaps find, listen, I say this carefully, perhaps find a point or two for repentance in your thinking about your situation. This is the case study I want to look at tonight, 1 Samuel in chapter 25, I like to call Abigail a portrait of grace. We're going to move through most of this chapter this evening in order to keep our pace clipping along. We're going to hang our thoughts on four pegs. These are your four points this evening. We're going to see a bad man, and then we're going to see a wrong answer. 
And thirdly, we will look at big trouble. And then finally, we'll look at the turning point. A bad man, a wrong answer, big trouble, and then the turning point. First of all, in verses 2 through 4, I want you to meet a really bad man. His name is Nabal. Now follow along as I read verses 2 through 4. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. And the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance But the man was harsh and evil in his doings, for he was a Calebite. This is a bad man. You know, there are some people that you meet, and your first impressions sometimes are the lasting right impressions. I remember when I went from high school to college, and I remember meeting my freshman roommate named Tim. I'd already met my other roommate named Michael. He was an accounting major, which meant he didn't talk a lot, and he was gone all the time studying. Uh, Tim was an education major, a composite science education major, which meant he was extremely intelligent. But the first time he walked in the door and he met his freshman roommate, me, you know, I'm all excited to be there and I'm bouncing all over the room with energy. And, and he comes in and he's just, he's just with a, um, a little odd in a cool way, very smart. And he just looked at me, didn't say anything, got a smirk on his face and started just just breathing a laugh. He went, (laughs) just like that. I remember that. I was like, what is this? This is my senior roommate. And let me just say that he was indeed very intelligent, a little quirky, so was I, and our first impressions were probably the lasting right impressions. That's the way it is with Nabal as we come into chapter 25. As a matter of fact, I see three facts about Nabal from what we just uh, read in verses 2 through 4. A few facts here that you need to mark down. We'll see them again. First of all, his identity is in his wallet. His identity is in his wallet. It, it, it says in verse 22, or verse 2, what he was living for. As a matter of fact, we get his balance sheet. This is an important. We get his balance sheet and his, his category of rich before we even get his name. This is what defined him. He lived for what wealth could bring, the freedom and the luxuries. He lived for that, and he was a successful businessman, and all his energies were towards building his kingdom. Uh, We're told here that he lived one mile, approximately one mile from a major business site. He was very wealthy. His currency was sheep and goats. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. That's sizable. I don't know, we can relate to that, but his accounts were full. His balance sheet was pleasant. His portfolio was indeed fruitful. But so fruitful was his portfolio, and so um, strong was his identity wrapped up in what he could amass that this will cost him his life. His identity is in his wallet. What else do we see here? And by the way, before I pull away from letter A, remember what Paul wrote to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10? It's not riches. It's not wealth that's a problem. God increases some more than he does others. God honors hard work. It's 
It's up to God as far as who gets the wealth. It's one thing to be wealthy. It's quite another thing to be materialistic. There's a difference, see. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And man, I'll tell you, this guy Nabal is going to be exhibit A in just a matter of moments. We're going to see this demonstrated. What's the second thing we know about this bad man? His trust is in his ideas. When we finally get past his financial spreadsheet, we get his name. His name is Nabal, or Nabal, and that's the Hebrew word for fool. The same word, Nabal, is used in Proverbs, or excuse me, Psalm 14, verse 1, as an example, which says, The fool, the Nabal, the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. We can see this again in another example in the prophets in Isaiah 32, verse 6. The foolish person will speak foolishness. As his name is, so is his character. Nabal is named a fool, and a fool, as you know, in the Hebrew mind, is someone who, who, who refuses to consider Yahweh, God, and his truth and his direction. We're also told that he is a Calebite at the end of verse 3. What does this mean? It just means he's a descendant of Caleb. Remember the good spy? Uh, he's a descendant of a guy that had, did have faith in God. Caleb and Joshua survived the, the desert extinction of a generation because they trusted in Yahweh. They trusted in the promises of the promised land that God had given to them. Nabal's a descendant of Caleb, but somewhere along the line... He didn't carry on Caleb's Godward passion. As a matter of fact, some commentators uh, think that there's a play of words going on here with the Hebrew author because the word Caleb is very close to dog in the Hebrew word, and some have even said this is a scribal attitude, so to speak, in the text. It is interesting. We're only going to hear Nabal speak a few times. Not once does he speak of the God of Israel. Not once does he speak of Yahweh. Keep that in mind. We're also told that he was, it says here, harsh and evil in his dealings. Um, His servants will even later describe him in verse 17 as the son of worthlessness. The New King James translates it simply a scoundrel. That's what we know about this bad man. His trust is in his own ideas. And and I word it that way because of his name. A fool, even if he knows God's way, always chooses his own way against God's way. You see, for a fool like Nabal, his God was himself. His way was the only way. And his will was supreme. He's a fool. Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 18, verse 2, A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. That's Nabal, not just 
little n, but capital N, as we would say in English. But there's something else we know about this bad man. His loyalty is actually with God's enemies. His loyalty is with God's enemies. Now, it says that this is taking place in Carmel, this scene that's going to unfold that we're going to read tonight. This isn't the Mount Carmel in Galilee. It was a place where King Saul, though, constructed a monument to himself after his apparent victory over the Amalekites. He beat the Amalekites, but he surrendered to the king that he had captive, if you will remember that, and Samuel rebuked him. That, that drama is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and after this victory over the Amalekites, Saul built a monument to himself. So there in that area was a statue or some sort of large monument that Saul wanted everyone to see to remind everyone else how awesome he was. And how he had beaten King Agag and the Amalekites. And Nabal's loyalty was to Saul. God had already rejected Saul, and David would soon be be king. But he was no longer God's friend. God had to search out for one that was after his own heart now. That wasn't Saul. That would be David. And so Nabal cast his lot with God's enemies. And as a matter of fact, when we get down to verse 20, or chapter uh, 25, verse 10, when Nabal even speaks about David, he's going to use very spiteful language about the son of Jesse. As if Nabal knew all about him, yet at the same time he claimed to know nothing about him. And he, he will accuse David of disloyalty to his boy, King Saul. He was a friend of the world. We're reminded and warned by James in the New Testament. James 4.4, 4, you adulteresses or you unfaithful, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is what we know about this guy. His identity is what he could amass. That's what he lived for. His trust is in his own wisdom. He's his own God. And he consistently lines up with those who are lined up against God. That's a bad man. It could be a bad lady. It's a description that I want you to hold on to as we move on. Someone once said, living in a fool's paradise is great fun until the rent comes due. And there's truth to that. And it's literally payday in our story. And I want to take you secondly to the wrong answer. The wrong answer. We'll see this again from verse 4 down to verse 13. Follow along as I read. And David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and Greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they'll tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. 
Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. Nothing but humility through that. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. That means, that's the second time we're reading that. That means he was introduced as David, the son of Jesse. And then it says, then they waited for the answer, the end of verse 9. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give them to the men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told David, told him according to all these words. And and David said to his men, Each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. We just read definitely a wrong answer. Let's get a little background here. It says, remember, that he has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Remember that? Having 4,000 livestock, if you will. Having 4,000 goats and sheep was a very easy target for bandits, especially on the Arabian, uh, the Sinai Peninsula. They were very easy, and there were many bandits looking for outfits just like this where they could pick off uh, animals that were non-defendable or undefended on the outskirts, the perimeter of, of especially such a large group of animals. David actually would have, and his men would have picked these animals to protect because they were the largest group and the most vulnerable. They were an easy target. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just uh, the, the goats and the sheep that needed protection in that region of the Sinai Peninsula at this time of the year when they were shearing. David, while he... Um, well, we, we know the size of his army at this point is around 600. David knew it would take no less than 200 trained men of war just to stay back and guard the luggage in this section of, of, of geography. I mean, this is a very dangerous zone. Now, if you were into sheep, you had two major times each year. You have the lambing, which often was around January and February. But then you also had the, the, the celebratory time of shearing, which was after the summer grazing, typically. This was a very festive time. It was a time of celebration. It was a, a time of giving and of being generous. It was payday, if you will. And there was a lot of celebration going on. As a matter of fact, if you were to take the time to go to 2 Samuel 13, you'd find the story, remember Absalom, who's going to... Um, uh, have a party, and he wants all his brothers and his dad to come to it, and it's, he has nefarious intent with his brothers, of course, but it was because of a time of shearing was going on. Huge celebration. And so for David to deploy so many of his men to the most vulnerable and probably the most wealthy outfit in that region against many trained bandits was a big deal. 
It wasn't uncommon for mercenaries to attach themselves to businessmen during this time to hopefully get a tip, if you will, as we would call it here in our restaurants, generate some income for protection. David's request, listen, is not abnormal. It's not rude. It's an appropriate and very common ask. And I would venture to say that the man that benefited the most from David's protection, especially at the level of his fighting men that they could fight, um, the one who benefits the most is Nabal. So David, what David does is he requests a common courtesy. It's well within the norm of that culture. It's appropriate. It's not inappropriate. And as I read those words, you saw words, listen, from a man of war, a man, of God, a man after God's own heart, but who, who, could, who, who, who could take down enemies of any size and shape. There's nothing but humility in David's words and deference and graciousness and patience. He requests a common courtesy. But what else do we see in this wrong answer? Nabal returns a very selfish reaction. Did you note those words uh, as you've read this before? Look at verse 9 again. And David's men came. They spoke to Nabal according to these words in David's name. And they waited, and Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David, and who is the son of Jesse? They are, there are many servants today who are each breaking away from his masters. And Reading between the lines there, like, like this David guy getting out from underneath Saul. Shall I then take my bread, my water, my meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? What is that? That's a very selfish reaction. Verse 14, the word is, is used to describe them, uh, these words, as scorning. It's not enough for Nabal just to look up from his, his desk and say, what's your request? And okay, the answer is no. I'm sorry, there's the door. It's not that. Nabal came unhinged, and this Hebrew word uh, just paints the picture of, of flying at someone. It, it, it can be translated to, to shriek. It's a, it was also used in that time to describe the noise that birds of prey made as they descended on a carcass and fought over it. Basically, what Nabal is saying to, David's, to David through his servants is this, I don't owe you anything, and I don't even know you. And by the way, you need to get back under King Saul where I am and where you belong. That's what he meant to say. He returns a very selfish reaction. So here's my question for you at this point in this story. Did Nabal give the right answer in David's opinion? Oh, I guess you could say yes if you're interested in losing your head today. Look at verses 12 and 13. So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. And David said, get your swords. 400 of you. I'll make 401. We're going. Insults can get you in trouble. Sometimes some people can get away with insults. I think of Charles Spurgeon. He was emphasizing to his, his class of preacher boys the importance of making the facial expression harmonize with your speech when you're preaching. And he said this, when you, when you preach of heaven... 
Let your face light up. Let it be just entrenched with and, and, and saturated with a heavenly gleam with your face as you talk of heaven. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. But when you also preach of hell, your ordinary face will do. <laughs> Spurgeon can get away with insulting his students in jest. Nabal can't get away with insults, especially with David. And in this game, you get one chance for the right answer. Sorry, Nabal. Now you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. You see, there's a principle we read in Scripture. The principle goes like this. The principle is when lightning strikes guys like Nabal, it unfortunately ignites all those standing near to him as well. See, that's a biblical principle. It is. Proverbs 13.20 says, The companion of fools will suffer harm. We're seeing big trouble unfold. There's good reason to worry. As someone said, worry's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but doesn't get you anywhere. There's a worry epidemic suddenly breaking out with Nabal's employees, and there are many of these employees for an operation this size. And we have some classic worrying that's going on with his, uh, with his employees, with his payroll, if you will, those that he pays. And for good reason. Look, look at verse 14 through 17. One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. He, he screeched at them. Yet the men were very good to us. I mean, we were on the peninsula. They were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything of those, of those sheep, those thousands of sheep. We, we, we missed none as long as we went about with David's men while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now, therefore, know and consider what you should do Abigail, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. I mean, they're saying, Abigail, you got, you got, you got, you got to hear us here. We saw these guys in action. We brought every sheep home. The bandits would not even tangle with these guys, and if they did, they went down. We, we know what he's capable of. We know how many armed men he has. We're in trouble. And they're worrying with some classic worrying. Like what? Well, I'm going to lose everything. You can understand one of his employees coming to that conclusion, right? I'm going to lose everything. Everything's at stake. My benefits are at stake. My job is at stake. My head is at stake. I'm going to lose everything. But there was a second one as well, a second worry. I don't have anywhere to run for help. The employees, in essence, were saying. See, what do you mean by that? Well, look at Think about it. They can't run to David. Why? Because he's coming for them. Every male will be killed, is the promise we're going to read. So we can't run to David. He's coming for our heads. We can't run to Nabal because he can't be reasoned with. And we can't run to Abigail. She's just a helpless woman. Right? Wrong. 
No, Abigail is a woman of grace. You show me a woman of grace, I'll show you a woman of strength. She's not going to sit around and worry. Someone once wrote, worry is wasting today's time to clutter up tomorrow's opportunities with yesterday's troubles. That doesn't fit Abigail. Abigail's more in line with what our Lord would teach in Matthew 6.34, the Sermon on the Mount. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for each day is its own trouble. She's not going to worry about and feast on what happened in the past. It's what are we going to do today with what confronts us. See, Abigail was not Mulan. She was not an expert warrior. But she is a portrait of grace in a dark home setting. And she has everything to do with the fourth part of our story, the turning point. Dale Davis, in his excellent commentary on 1 Samuel, by that one, Dale Davis is his name. Dale Davis rightly calls verses 20 to 35 the hinge of the story. And it hinges on Abigail. You see, what does a portrait of grace do in such a difficult home situation where we have a bad man who gave the wrong answer and now there's big trouble because of him? Well, what she did is twofold. First of all, she went into action and she met critical needs. She met critical needs. After the employees come to her with their concern in verses 14 through 17, look at verses 18 and 19. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. What is she doing? She's going into action and meeting critical needs. She's going to meet David and his men's physical need for food. David's greatest need at that point, after having deployed all these warriors for the season of shearing, after working hard, they needed, they needed income. They needed sustenance. And she decided that will be her entrance point with David. His greatest need at the moment for him and his men was not just sustenance, uh, materially, but physically, she prepared enough food for 601. The 400 that David was bringing and the 200 that were back with the bags, and that one is David. What does she prepare? You read it. 200 loaves, five prepared lambs, wine, grain, clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and these figs were sweet and very healthy and would keep for a long time. Um, this gift would satisfy these men both now and later. She, to carry all of this food, one has surmised, a student of the word has surmised, would take more than ten men to carry this, that long distance. She's overdoing it in a wonderful way. Everyone has a lane, right? And she knew the way to not just Nabal's heart, but... 601 other men's heart was sometimes through their stomach to get them to settle. You meet a physical need, they'll slow down enough to hear about the spiritual need. 
And that's what she does next. She went to David and addressed his heart. She addressed his heart. We don't have any record of them meeting before. So the familiarity that she shows in these verses is astounding. It's planned. It has the precision of the hands of a surgeon. So what we see here is we have a risky meeting in a valley. Things are tense. How is this, how is this introduction, is it even going to work or will the swords come out at first sight? Look at verses 20 and 20 through 22. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that, behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. And David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more so, if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. It's tense, and the meeting happens. And what happens in the next couple of moments is Awesome, if I can borrow Andy's word from last Sunday night. It's awesome. 401 men are stopped by one woman. Look at verses 23 to 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Wow. I mean, immediately, she's throwing herself down at his mercy. She's over-answering the need for food. For such a large group of warriors. And now she's going to start speaking to his heart. And she's going to remind David in the next few verses of five spiritual realities. That are good arguments for him to tap the brakes here. What's she going to say to him first? She's going to say, David, see God's leading. See his leading in your life up to this point. Look at verse 26. It's still Abigail speaking. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, and since Yahweh has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. She's basically saying, up to this point, you haven't killed Nabal or the men, the servants. And you need to see that as God's leading in your life. He's holding you back. Now, there's a hidden message here in her words that are are pretty evident nonetheless. And she's like, I'm the one stalling you out. God has put me in your way to stall this. Up to this point in this conversation, you still haven't shed blood. In other words, my being here is God slowing you down. David, see God's leading. And then she also appeals to his heart with these words, David, guard your testimony. Guard your testimony. 
Look at verses 27 and 28. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for Yahweh, for the Lord, will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh, of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. In other words, again, she's nudging him by speaking to his heart. Guard your testimony here. You are God's servant. Don't mess it up by shedding blood. You shouldn't. There's enough blood that you will have to shed, but you don't have to today for this right now. Guard your testimony. Big things are ahead still, David. What's the third spiritual reality? She speaks to his heart. David, appreciate God's care. Appreciate God's care. Look at verse 29. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with Yahweh your God. That's a precious phrase in Hebrew. Bundle. Uh, the Lord, and over she's saying, you, David, are bundled um, with the Lord by his side. And, and the Hebrew word there is describing something. If you had a, a dagger or you had a, um, a piece of jewelry of great value, you would, you would wrap it and bundle it up and then keep it on your person to protect it. You were always aware that it was with you, where it was, and it's just something that you always watched out for. And Abigail says, that's you and Yahweh. You are special to him. Appreciate how much you mean to the God of Israel. She points something else out to him. She says, David, watch God's avenging. You don't take your own vengeance. Watch God have your back. Or as they say in the SEAL teams, God has your six. And that's the second part of verse 29. The lives of your enemies, he, Yahweh, will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. There's nothing warm and, and, uh, and affectionate about that language. You're wrapped up as precious, David, but as far as your enemies, if they're your enemies, they're here his enemies, and he will cast them far away as out of a sling, not a bundle. You see that, David? Oh, and David, one more thing. David, protect your conscience. Protect your conscience. Look at verse 30. And when the Lord, when Yahweh does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, she knew that he was going to be the next king. She knew of those prophecies. And appoint you ruler over Israel. This will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord, when Yahweh deals well with my Lord, then remember your, your maidservant. She's saying, there's big things coming. Don't do things now that will put a limp in what God has for you in the future at the level of your conscience. Wow. Just when you were impressed with the meal she prepared for 601 men, are we not even more impressed with these talking points of his heart? This is good advice for anyone. This is good advice all the time. This is good advice for women and men 
who might find themselves married to a disobedient or unsaved spouse. As a matter of fact, it makes you wonder, where did she get these five talking points? Do you think there's a possibility that these five talking points were solidified in her own heart after years of living with Nabal? The counsel she gives, listen, is her own. These are the categories she has to, she has to live in every day living with a, a disobedient, unsaved man like Nabal. She didn't scribble this out on the, 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 uh, the back of the beast of burden she was riding to meet David. This had been written out years before. You say, well, did it work? Look at verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as Yahweh God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. And remember, she had sent this, uh, these men in front of her to meet David first as she approached, and they're carrying all this food, and these men are hearing that. We would have been dead. Verse 35, So David received from her hand what she had brought him. And said to her, go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Yeah, I'd say it worked. I'd say it worked. And you have seen up close tonight, Abigail, a portrait of grace. Can you beat her story? whether it's your husband or, in your case, it might be your wife, unsaved or disobedient, can you beat her story? Uh, Let me ask that this way. Are you married to a fool whose identity is what they can amass in this life? Their trust is only in their own counsel, and they're loyal to the enemies of God? Or do you find yourself saying, yeah, hashtag me too? Or I could ask it this way. Are you certain that everything in your life could be lost because of what you have to live with? Or how about this question? Are there no guarantees that life will ever be easier for you when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to your parenting in your home, the pressures you face, the finances? Can you beat her story? Well, take heart as we wind this up, because I see a principle here. What you see at work in Abigail's extreme setting can be at work in your unique setting as well. You've looked at Abigail, and you saw something that's common to other believers. She was a portrait of grace. What made her so? A couple of comments in closing. Her daily priority was to walk with God. 
It was to walk with God. You know what her name means? It means joy. There's joy in her name and there's joy in her heart. Watch this. Her joy is not dependent on Nabal. It's not hitched to his car, his train car. Her joy is a, is a, is a, is a fixed reality in her life. Why is that? I believe it's because she walks with God. Did you know up until verse 32, she was the one who talked the most of Yahweh, even more than David? Nabal didn't even refer to Yahweh, the true God of Israel. David, so blinded by his rage, he references him very sparingly before his repentance. She alone knew this Yahweh. She also had some knowledge of the prophecies, perhaps from Samuel, that David would be the next king. Word got out. This lady is a lady of understanding and insight. And so I have a question. Where does that come from? Does understanding and insight come out of a vacuum? No. We don't have to wonder. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One, that's understanding. Her daily priority was to walk with God. Nabal wasn't her excuse not to spend time with God. It was her place to go for recharging. The true God of Israel, Yahweh. Philip Brooks once wrote these words. The Bible's like a telescope. If a man looks through his telescope, he sees worlds beyond. But if he looks at his telescope, he does not see anything but that. The Bible is a thing to be looked through to see that which is beyond, but most people only look at the Bible, and so they only see the dead letter. End quote. Not not Abigail. Her daily priority was to walk with God. Secondly, her personal role was an assignment from God. Her personal role was an assignment from God. One thing I note here is that Abigail didn't hold the door open for an escape from this tyrant. We don't read of any physical abuse. We read of a man who's very arrogant and angry, and she was not planning and plotting an escape because she understood the concept that Yahweh had provided from the pen of Moses in Genesis chapter 2 that she is to be a helper suitable to him. She was on assignment from God in Nabal's life. She risked all to protect her husband, Nabal. Why? Because Nabal was worthy? No. No, she, was, she risked it all to protect her husband, not because of Nabal, but because of God. Abigail and women that find themselves in a marriage like this are never told to trust Nabal. They are told to trust God and complete your husband. She completed Nabal, a suitable helper, as Moses would write in Genesis 2.18. She was on assignment from God to complete him, and that meant saving his neck. And what else? Her initial response was to work for God. Everywhere Abigail looked, she found something to do. So much for being paralyzed, right? She looked at Nabal and she had to save his life. 
She looked at her workers and she had to preserve their welfare. She looked at David and she wanted to protect his character. You say, wait a minute, man. You didn't finish the story. All the good stuff starts happening in verse 36 and goes all the way to verse 43. I mean, Nabal's going to die. Jim, why didn't you read that part? And David's going to propose to Abigail, and she's going to accept with great humility. Why didn't you read that? I don't have to. Because watch this. Even if the chapter had ended at verse 35, she would have still remained a portrait of grace. Even if Nabal hadn't died and David hadn't proposed and the wedding bells hadn't rung, she still would have been a portrait of grace. And there's a principle here as well. A portrait of grace in a home does not live for finish lines and fairy tale endings. She lives for the moment and is all about the glory of God in that moment. Sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So Abigail would come to you if you find yourself married to a disobedient or unsafe spouse, whether you're the husband or you're the wife, and Abigail would listen to your story, ask her questions, and then she would spin around and show you her mole. Yeah, me too. And let me tell you what I saw God This is the case study that I want you to prayerfully consider between now and next Sunday night when we come back to this series. Because I have to say some difficult things to you next Sunday night if this is your story. But I want you to be able to fall back on Abigail's example. Married to Nabal. What a story of grace and a story of hope for all of us. Would you stand as we're dismissed in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, thank you again for letting us see so much in this text. We've seen the ugliness of living for what we can amass and living according to our own wisdom and aligning ourselves with the enemies of God and what pain that brings into our home. And I pray if we have Nabals here or listening that there would be a mercy of repentance granted right now from their heart and crying out to you for mercy and help. We learned a lot about David, who was a man after your own heart and already your choice to be the, the next king. And yet even he had struggles with anger. We needed to see that. But it, it's the beauty of this woman, Abigail, in the middle of the storm between a fool and a warrior. So much at stake, and she moves with such precision. She moves in a way that's rooted in her walk with you. And she even addresses the heart of a king. Thank you for this portrait of Abigail. May she be an anchor of hope for men and women in marriages where there is an unsaved or disobedient spouse. And may she... And her talking points that she had to live by that she eventually shared with David. May those be our talking points every day in the mirror too, by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.